You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, I'm pleased to present a special episode, a discussion with author Michael C. Harris. He wrote a book about the Battle of Brandywine several years ago, and has recently just published what is essentially a sequel, taking up the story with the end of Brandywine. His new book is entitled Germantown, A Military History of the Battle for Philadelphia, October 4, 1777. Mr. Harris is a graduate of the University of Mary Washington and the American Military University. He has worked for the National Park Service in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Fort Mott State Park in New Jersey, and the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission at Brandywine Battlefield. In addition to writing, Mr. Harris currently teaches in the Philadelphia area, where he lives with his family. I was pleased to speak with Mr. Harris via a video conference for a discussion about his new book on Germantown and about the Philadelphia campaign more generally. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Michael, welcome to the American Revolution podcast. We're happy to have you. Well, thank you for having me. So. Why specifically Germantown? What prompted you to write a book about the Battle of Germantown? Those of you who don't know, I wrote a book on Brandywine previously. And I had worked at Brandywine for the state of Pennsylvania. And when I started working there, I was discouraged that there weren't good research files. And there really wasn't a good history on the battle as a starting point as for somebody that was working there. And so it's that project started as a process to correct that problem, and to dispel the many myths that I found surrounding Brandywine. It never was an intention to continue that story into a second book. But as I was promoting the first book, there was a lot of interest from people that came to hear me. And Revolutionary War history written on the common soldiers level, at the tactical level, that wasn't just generalities about political and social issues, but that dove into deeper military issues just not that common in American Revolution history. So I kind of decided to dig through the research files and start working on what's, in a sense, a second volume to Brandywine, covering more of the Philadelphia campaign. Yeah, that's what I really like. Uh, You take both of your books together, your book on Brandywine and your book on Germantown. It's a pretty thorough coverage of the Philadelphia campaign generally. It doesn't just go over those two battles as isolated incidents. It's part of the continuum from New York to the Chesapeake to Philadelphia for the British. So let's start at the beginning of the campaign. Why do you think General Howe took forever to start the campaign that year? He really didn't even leave New York until mid-July and then didn't get down to the Chesapeake and actually land his troops until the end of August. Typically, a military campaign would start in the spring. Why didn't he do that? Well, They do, in a sense, start in the spring. There is some minor maneuvering in northern New Jersey. After the battles of Trenton and Princeton, Washington went in the winter quarters up in northern New Jersey in that mountainous area around Morristown. Washington had to rebuild his army. The army that fought in 1776 had one-year enlistments, and they were expiring actually during the Trenton and Princeton operation. The army was bleeding troops throughout that whole operation. So they're really starting over almost from scratch, creating new regiments and new brigades and new divisions 
many of the guys that are recruited in 77 had not even fought the previous year. So they're starting from scratch. And so Washington kind of held, held up in those mountains because it was he was protected there. And Hal does initially maneuver up around the Raritan River where uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey is today, trying to get Washington out of the mountains and draw him into an open fight. And there is some minor skirmishing. There's a minor engagement at a place called Short Hills in June of 1777. But all that's really minor. And he really doesn't get Washington out of the mountains. The other thing, though, the other reason he's going to wait is he's actually waiting for word that John Burgoyne, who's leading an army out of Canada, a British army out of Canada, had reached Fort Ticonderoga. He kind of wanted to make sure that they at least had gotten that far before he takes the majority of the army in New York and leaves. And so there's a combination of things. He tries to march overland and it doesn't work. And he's also waiting for word from Burgoyne. And that's really when he starts loading the ships to go south. Then there's kind of a second part to that. You know, why do they go to the Chesapeake? The fleet leaves New York Harbor in mid-July and they actually enter Delaware Bay down around Cape May the end of July, like July 31st. And they could have come up the Delaware River and landed in Wilmington or just south of Chester, Pennsylvania. And they choose not to do that. And it gets a little complicated and in the weeds here. But Hal had said before he left New York, he had told the British government that he would only come up the Delaware River if Washington's army had yet to cross the Delaware River, like they were still in New Jersey. And when they get to the Delaware Bay, there was a a naval captain named uh, Andrew Hammond, who was in command of the blockading squadron for the British fleet in the Delaware. And he reports to Howe and his brother Richard, who commands the fleet, the Howe brothers, that Washington is across the the river, which was an incorrect report. Washington was not across the river. They had gotten to the river just above New Jersey, but they had not crossed yet. And so it was a false report. And so based on that false report, how, oh, I'm not going up here then. And they go back out to sea. They're going to spend another month at sea to get around the Delmarva Peninsula before landing in the northern Chesapeake where the Elk River empties into the Chesapeake, a place called Turkey Point, just outside Elkton, Maryland today. And that's August 25th. So they spend another, almost another month at sea and they land roughly 20 miles west of where they could have landed a month previously. It's a stunning decision, and it's a decision that really dooms Burgoyne, because the moment that they go back out to sea, there's no possibility of returning to assist Burgoyne, and down the road, you're going to have the battle of Saratoga, and Burgoyne's going to surrender an army. Right, and I think a lot of people question that decision, both then and now. Why didn't he land in Delaware Bay and just march up from there? When he went out to sea and he had to sail all the way down to Virginia and back up the Chesapeake, that cost him weeks where his men were getting sick and dying aboard ship. He lost half of his horses aboard ship. It just didn't make any sense to anyone. I I, I never understood it. He's going to resign at the end of this campaign, and he's going to have to testify before Parliament. And the official reason he gives the Parliament is that he wanted to uh, attack the the supply depots in the backcountry before getting Philadelphia. Well, the problem with that argument before Parliament is that the moment they land, every decision he makes is about reconnecting with the fleet on the Delaware River. Right. Because the British have a constant supply issue throughout the war. An inland army can never venture far from a navigable river because they need the supply ships to supply the army. That's what happened to Burgoyne. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what happens to Burgoyne. And so the moment they land, every decision he makes through northeastern Maryland, northern Delaware, southeastern Pennsylvania, is how to reconnect with the fleet. But he never goes after the backcountry, never. Washington's afraid he will and makes his own decisions based on that fear. But hell, I don't think ever had an intention of really going back there. So then the question begs, why did he do it? And I, I could speculate. The problem is Hal's personal papers are gone. His wife burns them after he dies. And all we have is his official reports and his testimony before Parliament, and his true feelings aren't going to be revealed in those official documents. Sure. I mean, I speculate that he's mad at Burgoyne. Burgoyne had gone home during the winter previously and basically proposed the plan of campaign for 1777, where he was going to lead that army south, and Howe was supposed to lead an army north, and they were supposed to meet in Albany. 
And the fact that Burgoyne basically went behind Hal's back and got approval for that plan without Hal's input, I can't prove it, but I think it rankled him. And I think he didn't care what happened to Burgoyne. Again, I can't prove that. No, but that theory does make sense. I mean, Burgoyne ticked off a lot of people, including General Guy Carlton and General Clinton, by basically going back to London and saying, these guys are all grannies and cowards who aren't willing to push ahead, and I can do it, so put me in charge, even though I'm a junior general to them. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, again, I think that plays into it, and he had to have an official reason for abandoning Burgoyne, and I think he makes up the backcountry story. I think he needed a reason, in, in hindsight, for why everything went down. Because by the time he resigns, Burgoyne's already surrendered. He right. officially sends in his resignation letter like late October. I think it's post Saratoga. It's definitely after Germantown. But he technically stays in command until the following spring when he takes his ship home. But he had already submitted his resignation before several of the operations around the forts and the White Marsh operation. I think Howe was never happy with the amount of troops he had. Even when they were giving him record amounts in 76, he wasn't completely happy. And it sounded like he really wanted to resign because they just they wouldn't give him the troops to complete the job. Let's assume for a minute that Howe wasn't deliberately trying to tank the British uh, success in America. He could have landed in southern Delaware and gone from there. One reason, I think, was he wanted to avoid being attacked while he was landing his troops, which makes sense. Mm. <laughs> Problem with that theory is, well, okay, he was given the impression that Washington's across the river. Right. But it doesn't mean Washington's in Delaware. You know, even if Washington was across, he would have been basically up around where New Hope is today. He wasn't even in Philadelphia yet. In my opinion... Even if Hammond's report was accurate, let's assume that argument for a moment, how could have landed in Wilmington or a place called Reedy Island just south of Chester, Pennsylvania, within a day or two of entering the Delaware Bay, and there was nothing Washington could do about it. Right. So Howe made bad decisions. I mean, if he really wanted to win the war, he was making bad decisions. Yeah. But that also brings up the idea that since he did give Washington all that additional time by sailing around to the Chesapeake, Washington probably could have hit him once he realized where he was landing. Why didn't Washington want to be that aggressive? I don't think he was ready. Uh, remember, the army's being rebuilt. He's also short one of his divisions. When the army moved south, they actually left John Sullivan's division in northern New Jersey in case Howe came back that way, basically to keep an eye on things up there. And they don't rejoin the army until, I want to say it's either late August or early September while they're in northern Delaware. So at the point, the point I'm making is when, when Hal actually lands, Sullivan's not back with the army yet. The other issue is the day Hal lands, Washington's still north of Philadelphia. He had camped for a long while along uh, the Neshaminy Creek on the north side of Philadelphia. And he doesn't actually march through the city and start moving into the Delaware, into northern Delaware, until the same day the British are landing. So he wasn't even in position to even think about attacking the day that they landed. The British get a few days or a couple of weeks before they start marching. Washington is in Wilmington, Delaware. Howe moves up. They have a small skirmish at Cooch's Bridge, which uh, the Delaware people are always excited about because that's their one battle. But then, then moves a little bit west and, of course, goes up the Brandywine Creek. And that's where we have the first major battle of this campaign. What do you think each side did right or wrong at Brandywine? Okay, so let's start with the British. The British did almost everything right, um, with the possible exception of the tail end of the battle without pursuing the defeated Americans. That's the one thing they do wrong, yeah. um, because they don't really pursue Washington's retreat army until the next morning. By then, it's too late. But other than that, they effectively used locals for intelligence. They knew the road network. They executed their game plan almost to perfection. They basically, it's a repeat of the same plan they used on Long Island in the Battle of you know, Brooklyn Heights or the Battle of Long Island, depending on how you want to refer to that. In fact, it's the seventh time he executed a flanking maneuver against Washington successfully, and every time Washington doesn't figure it out. So, I mean, ultimately, they did 
everything right except the very end. They don't really pursue. And you could argue that they were tired. Darkness was setting in. They didn't have enough cavalry with the army to effectively pursue. I mean, you could make all those arguments. But that's the one thing I would argue that they did wrong. The Americans, on the other hand, from a leadership standpoint, we can talk about the common soldiers in a second, did everything wrong. They do not use locals effectively to learn the road network and the actual crossing points that were available to the British Army. They don't even use senior officers in the Army to learn the road network. They don't use officers that lived in the area to go out and scout when they start to get reports that there's a flanking maneuver. They use people from other parts of the country that do not know the roads or the farms in the area. I would argue that Washington's decision-making the entire day are poor. In fact, I don't think he makes one right decision the entire day. That said, I think the common soldiers of the Army do not get enough credit in that battle. Because despite the mistakes that all the senior leadership make throughout the day, it ain't their fault they lose. In fact, the three divisions that rush to the north to try to confront the flanking maneuver Two of those three divisions actually fight well. If they weren't so outnumbered, I don't know if the British push them off that hill. So, you know, despite that this is pre-Valley Forge and it's a fairly new army and they're growing and they're learning, I don't think the common soldiers do that poorly at Brandywine. I don't think they get enough credit, but their senior leadership failed them in the battle. I guess the one decision Washington did make right that day was the decision to get out of there in time before the (laughs) army was captured. After that, how sat in Brandywine for, I think, over a week. Um, it's five days. Five days, five. okay. Yeah. Was that because his army was still exhausted from the voyage and from marching up from the... No, there's several times throughout the campaign where they're going to stop for four, five, six days. The main reason is, not that they're tired, they kind of dealt with that while they were still down in northeastern Maryland and Delaware. The real issue is they have a shortage of supplies. So their fresh food ran out on the voyage. Their salted beef and hard bread were rotted and moldy by the time they landed. And then the other factor, which you mentioned earlier, is their livestock, the vast majority of it died on the voyage. So they have a shortage of draft animals for moving wagons and artillery, etc., to the point where they're going to spend multiple times through the campaign stocked so they can raid the countryside for supplies and horses. They do it right after they land. They do it in Northern Delaware right before the Battle of Coochers Bridge. They do it again at Brandywine. They're gonna do it after the Battle of Clouds. They do it multiple times. So they can send out these foraging parties and gather hopefully what they need. The other reason that specifically after Brandywine that they're gonna stop, Hal needs to create a reconnection with the fleet. So while they're stopped, he's gonna send a detachment the first of many he's going to make over the next few weeks to seize Wilmington and garrison Wilmington for uh, a connection point when the fleet comes back around from Chesapeake Bay. So that's another reason they're going to be stalled and they need to evacuate their wounded. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. They ship their wounded to Wilmington with that detachment to get them off the battlefield. So there's multiple factors, but the main one is it's a supply issue. So after Brandywine, while the British are foraging and doing what they're doing, taking Wilmington, Washington retreats all the way back across the Schuylkill River to Philadelphia, sees that the British aren't pursuing him, and then finds his way back, wanders back toward the army again, um, leading to the Battle of the Clouds. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, let's start with the maneuvering first and why. First of all, he had to get out of there. The reason they fight at Brandywine is it was a natural defensive barrier between the British Army and Philadelphia. I know for those of you that may live in the area... It's hard to imagine the Brandywine as a defensive barrier today. But back then, the Brandywine was deep. I mean, just to give you a sense, the fords where you could walk across were chest deep. So it was a barrier to uh, an army. So once they lose that fight, the only other natural defensive barrier between the British and Philadelphia now is the Schuylkill River. Because in the 18th century, Philadelphia sat on a peninsula formed by the Schuylkill and the Delaware Rivers. It's not like today where it was on both sides of the Schuylkill River. Today was a fairly small city, you know, on that narrow peninsula. And so Washington now knew he had to get into a position, he had to rest and regroup, but he also had to get into a position to block the crossings of the Schuylkill River. So the very complicated maneuvering he does 
over those five days that the British stay at Brandywine is the night, the morning after the battle, he retreats up through Upper Darby, crosses the Schuylkill River roughly where 30th Street Station is today, and marches out Ridge Pike and camps in the Germantown area, actually, the day after the battle. They're going to spend a couple days there regrouping, resupplying, shipping off their wounded, etc. Then they start to maneuver back into that blocking position. So um, off the top of my head, I think it's the 13th, might be the 14th, if I'm I'll have it right in front of me. But they start to move out of Germantown. They cross at Leverings Ford, which is where Maniunk is today. And then they start maneuvering out roughly, it was the Lancaster Road in the 18th century, but it's roughly US 30 today, Route 30, heading west. And so by the morning or by the evening of September 15th, just four days after Brandywine, they have maneuvered into the, the area known as the Great Valley roughly where Immaculata College is today. And they are in that valley. And that valley is formed by something called the South Valley Hills and the North Valley. And so the morning of the 16th, Washington's plan is, is he wants to maneuver the army up onto the South Valley Hills to block access to the road junctions in the Great Valley that lead to the Schuylkill River Fort. That was the point of getting into that position. What he doesn't know is that on the morning of the 16th, William Howe has now decided to get moving again. And his army is going to come up two different roads, well, ultimately three different roads to converge on, those, on that South Valley Hill from the south. And neither army really realizes this is happening, but they're using the same roads to get up onto the hill. And it's an unexpected engagement. They kind of run into each other. And you have this clash that becomes known as the Battle of the Clouds, really because this massive rainstorm breaks out, ruining ammunition on both sides. And so there is some minor skirmishing, but it never develops into a full-scale battle that it could have because all the ammunition gets wounded in this windswept rain into these guys' cartridge boxes. And that's why it's known as the Battle of Clouds. And it's really two separate engagements on two different roads separated by a mile, mile and a half it's not like a rolling stand-up engagement like you would think of as a, at like at a Brandywine or a Germantown. They're two very isolated little skirmishes that never develop into a full-scale engagement because of that rainstorm. It could have been a very serious battle, but... but yeah, it, it could have, yeah. After that, Washington, I guess, thinks better of his advance and pulls back across the Schuylkill River again. But he does leave a detachment behind, which ends up in the British rear near Paoli. You want to talk about what happened there? Because of the ammunition situation, the night of the Battle of the Clouds, the army initially retreats to Yellow House, which was a tavern. It'll later be a hospital facility during the Valley Forge campaign. Today, it's known as Chester Springs. Or not Yellow House, Yellow Springs, I'm sorry. Yellow Springs. Today, it's known as Chester Springs. I actually think it's not until they get there that they realize how bad the ammunition situation is. And so it's going to force him to retreat even farther west, all the way out to Warwick Furnace and Reading Furnace in northwestern Chester County to get access to their supply depots and a new supply of ammunition. When they make the decision to go that far west, Anthony Wayne's division is ordered to remain behind and keep an eye on the British Army. And they're ultimately going to camp actually outside of the modern town of Malvern. It's known as the Battle of Paoli because of Paoli Tavern, but it's not actually in the town of Paoli today. Right. And so they're left behind. And while Wayne is sort of hanging out behind the British Army, Washington regroups, he gets that resupply, and then he maneuvers back across the Schuylkill River. They cross at Parker's Ford, which is where, uh, again, if you're familiar with the Philadelphia area, it's where Linfield Road crosses towards Limerick. If you're coming from the south side of the Schuylkill, there's a bridge there today. And then he moves into a blocking position stretched from roughly modern-day Warriors Ford all the way out to modern-day Norristown. The Army's kind of spread out watching all these Fords again, almost like what happened at Brandywine. They're spread out watching multiple Fords. And the plan was, Washington's thought process was, that as the British were attempting to cross the river, Wayne was going to strike their rear. That's why he was waiting back there. The problem is the British intercept the messages between Washington and Wayne. The British know the plan. The other problem is the loyalists in Chester County informed Howe of exactly where, or not exactly, roughly where Wayne was camped. And so 
Hal wants to cross the river, but he doesn't want Wayne in his rear while he's doing it. So on the night of September 2021, he orders a detachment to go assault Wayne's camp. And what's sort of a myth about the battle is that these guys were caught in their beds and stabbed and burned to death and all that other stuff. And, and that some of those things do happen, but they're not caught in their beds. That's a myth. Wayne actually does get a report that the British are coming for him in the middle of the night. And he actually gets his, his division in line to march out of there. The problem was he wanted his supply wagons and artillery to lead the column instead of being at the back. And one of those artillery pieces overturns and blocks the way out through the fences. And so the infantry is all lined up in a column, the march, when the British hit them. Hmm. And so in some ways, it's not totally, I mean, Wayne was trying to get out of there. And so these British come swarming out of the woods and they catch these guys in, the, in a marching column and not in a line of battle. And it, it becomes vicious. I mean, and there is some violence and there is some massacres where guys are, are stabbed dozens of times. British were just playing with them in a, in a weird sort of way. And so Wayne does extricate his division, but he gets chewed up and chopped up. And it becomes known as this Paoli Massacre, the Battle of Paoli. So with Wayne's army out of the way, at least as far as the British are concerned at this point, they do go ahead and cross the Schuylkill. And it seems like this time Washington is, is trying to learn from his lessons because when they move up river to try to flank around him again, he follows them. But then they kind of come back and zip across the river from where he was in the first place. In my opinion, and it's funny, I've been talking to another historian lately about this, Washington overreacts. He was lined up in a perfect position. And on the 23rd, I think it's September 23rd, the British send a column west down, let's say, Route 23 towards Phoenixville because they knew of a, of a factory down there making gun locks for the American Army. And he wanted to destroy that facility. And Washington scouts and, and the militia report back that they're moving west. But it was just a detachment. And Washington, I think, panics because of Brandywine's still very fresh in his mind. And he knows that there's Fords farther west he's really not keeping an eye on. And I think he he overreacts. He pulls his guys away from the Fords around Norristown and modern-day Oaks to shift west, thinking the British were heading that way. And, of course, that's really not what Hal's intent was. But because they opened up all those lower Fords, Hal's able to cross. I think it's the night of the 23rd into the 24th. They cross at Fatland Ford, which is roughly behind where the chapel is in Valley Forge Park today and basically march into Norristown, camp for a day before occupying Germantown. How ends up taking a few more days before he actually takes Philadelphia proper. It's hard to imagine for people who know Philadelphia today, but Philadelphia at the time was really, went from about, what, South Street to Ray Street, and maybe out to about 7th or 8th Street. And that, that, was, yeah. that was really Philadelphia at the time. Yeah, it wasn't very big. It basically... Yeah, you you pretty much nailed it. Uh, you you got it. you you got the dimensions about right there. <laughs> yeah. So usually when you think you cross the Schuylkill River, as you said before, you you think you're in Philadelphia, which you would be today. But back then, you were still miles away from the city. And Germantown, of course, is part of Philadelphia today as well. Was well outside of town in 1777. So General Howe finally enters Philadelphia on September 26, takes possession of the city, but he leaves. The majority of the army in Germantown, correct? It starts to get complicated. So they, they move into Germantown on September 25th, and then he starts creating detachments. So he had already sent troops to Wilmington. We talked about that earlier. The next chunk of troops that are going to be detached are the occupying force for Philadelphia. Now, Hal does not go with them. Charles Cornwallis is going to lead that column. Um, and it's a significant chunk of the troops. It's several of the elite regiments, grenadiers, are going to go, a lot of the artillery is going to go to officially occupy Philadelphia. And then on October, it's either September 30th or October 1st, he's going to send two more regiments from Germantown, the 10th and the 42nd afoot, to Chester because he wants those two regiments to be ferried across the river by the fleet, which has now returned to the Delaware to attack a fortification called Billingsport in southern New Jersey, which is near modern-day Paulsboro, because Hal needs to start eliminating the obstacles to the fleet 
and their ability to get to Philadelphia because there's obstructions in the river and there was three fortifications keeping the fleet from moving up the river. And so that was like step one to opening up the river to the fleet. And so Washington's spies are doing a very good job of informing him of all these detachments from the army at Germantown. So the, the troops that are left in Germantown at this point, or, or that army that's left there, is a shadow of the army that fought at Brandywine because of all these detachments from that force. Washington, in the meanwhile, has actually, if nothing else, replaced his losses from Brandywine and the other engagements we've talked about because a, a brigade of Connecticut troops that were not at Brandywine have now joined the army and New Jersey and Maryland militia have now joined the army that were not at Brandywine. And so I actually think the army that was assembled prior to Germantown is fairly equal in size to the force he had at Brandywine. The problem is how many of them are able-bodied? How many of them actually make the march into Germantown? That's what's debatable. I don't think the entirety of those 15,000 troops make the attack. I think a lot of them were sick. I also know from the records that they left a significant detachment to watch the camp equipment as camp guards from where they left from. So the the traditional number of about 11,000 that make the attack probably isn't that far off. But on paper, they were probably close to equal what they were at Brandywine. And so they, they significantly outnumber that British force at Germantown, and Washington knew that. And he takes a gamble. He's going to attack. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Washington comes up with what's been later criticized as a hopelessly complicated attack plan with multiple columns. And this was not unusual for Washington. He tried to do the same thing in the attack on Trenton and on other occasions. Why was he so intent on trying these really complex plans with an army that was not particularly skilled or experienced? And how did it work out for him? It's a good question. And I, I mean, I don't know 100% why he did it, but let's start with how it turns out. Despite what later historians will claim, you know, I've done obviously a lot of research on it. It's not true. I mean, those five columns, well, at least four of the five, yes, they are going to use five different roads. That's true. But despite what most histories say from what I can find in the records, all of those columns got to where they were supposed to in the middle of the night over roads they were unfamiliar with roughly within the 10 to 15 minutes of each other which is admirable in the 18th century when you don't have radios and GPS and you're doing it in the middle of the night. So the plan actually worked and they actually crush two thirds of the British troops that were there before things turned sour. I'm sure we're going to talk about that in a second. Things, it worked. Now, why does he do it? Why does he make a complicated plan? Well, think about 18th century roads that maybe are a cart width or a wagon width or wide. They're not like modern roads. They're not paved. It's dark. It's the middle of the night. Getting 11,000 troops from your camp to where you want to attack and be able to deploy them in a manner where they can all attack at once, you can't use one road to do that. Makes sense. And surprise the British Army. 
you're going to have to use multiple roads to be able to deploy that force in such a way that they can all assault at roughly the same moment. Yes, it's complicated, but I think there was a necessity to do that. The other question I guess I had was, why Germantown? Why did he attack there? Was he hoping to distract the British from their plans to clear the Delaware River, or did he really hope to retake Philadelphia? At this point, I don't think it has to do with the river. That's going to come later. And I, I think it's a bit far-fetched to think he was going to retake Philadelphia in one fell swoop. Yeah. But I think he was under an incredible amount of pressure politically to get a win. There are at least off the top of my head three or four councils of war from the moment they recross the Schuylkill. So after Battle of the Clouds, once they're across the Schuylkill, they're going to, over that roughly two-week period, there's at least three or four councils of war where Washington proposes to his senior officers to attack, and he keeps getting voted down. So he's looking for an opportunity, probably from about September 22, 23 on. It's not until they get those Connecticut reinforcements that he gets a majority of his division commanders to say, okay, let's give this a try. And that takes place on October 2nd, I think it is, while they're camped on the Methacton Hills northwest of Germantown. That's when he devises the plan, and then they leave the night of the 3rd to attack the morning of the 4th. So he's basically waiting for the okay, the support of his, his commanders. But he want, I think if he could have gotten there okay earlier, he would have done it earlier. Now, what's the ultimate goal? That was part of the question, right? I think the ultimate goal was to destroy the force at Germantown. I don't think all on that same day they could have gotten Philadelphia too. But if they could have destroyed the force of Germantown and forced them to retreat into Philadelphia, remember Philadelphia sits on a peninsula. If they could have blocked the land approaches to the city and maintained the river forts from the, so the British fleet couldn't resupply and reinforce that army, he could have starved them out of the city and forced to surrender. I think that's the long-term goal. But you will never know because he doesn't win that battle, but he will continue to try to maintain those forts and try to starve them out of the city. So the columns hit Germantown. It's a cloudy, foggy, dew-ridden morning. Sight lines are pretty limited. It seems like the British and Hessians are pretty much taken by surprise. What goes wrong? Well, I mean, things were going right. There was a, a reserve division that was not initially engaged of New Jersey, North Carolina troops. And the plan was, after the initial success, to rotate out the units that started the fight, replace them with these fresh troops, and to keep the attack going. Allow the troops that started the fight to get resupplied with ammunition, and then ultimately they would be able to rejoin the fight over time. And what goes wrong is the senior leadership gets completely wrapped up with this issue at, at a house called Cliveden, the country retreat of Benjamin Chu. Right. And what goes down is during the initial successes, they're, as they're routing and pushing back British units, a couple companies of the 40th afoot, led by Colonel Thomas Musgrave, are getting swept up in this attack, and they run into the house for protection. While they're in the process of blocking the windows and doors and stuff and getting ready to defend the house. The Americans keep going. They push past it. I don't think initially they realized they even had guys in that house because they push well beyond that house into the center of Germantown, very close to where the market square in Germantown is. And it's not until Timothy Pickering, the Army's adjutant general, is ordered to ride forward and tell the advanced units to slow down the rate of fire because of the ammunition issues. He delivers that order, and on his ride back up Germantown Avenue, he gets shot at from the house. And he's like, whoa. <laughs> and so about what's today now, I guess it's like two blocks north of the house, there's a house, the Bill Meyer house, which stood at the time. But at the time, it was all open ground from the Bill Meyer house to Cliveden. And so even with the fog and things, the senior leadership had gathered outside this Billmeyer house to discuss what to do, because that was the house closest to Cliveden, because again, it was all open between those two buildings at the time. Pickering comes back and he rides back to this argument going on, and really the argument's going to develop between Henry Knox, the Army's chief of artillery, and Pickering, the Army's adjutant general. There's other officers there too, but I get the sense they're the two 
arguing the most. Knox claims you can't leave what he calls a castle in our rear. We must deal with that before continuing the fight. And Pickering's argument is this battle ain't over. Let's not worry about that because we need to deal with what's in our front because this is far from decided. And there's a huge debate. And ultimately, Washington's going to side with Knox. Not clear why. Knox is not a trained military man. He basically got his position from the fact that he had pulled a bunch of cannons from Fort Ticonderoga and brought them to Boston. And by that sheer thing, he's made Brigadier General Chief of Artillery. He's not anybody with great knowledge or expertise when it comes to military matters. Right. He was a bookstore owner before the war. Yes. And for whatever reason, Washington puts a lot of trust in. You know, we could debate what really went down at that argument, but that's the decision that's made. And there's going to be multiple ways that they attempt to draw those British troops out of that house. They first send an officer with a white flag to summon the surrender. He gets shot, mortally wounded. He's going to die. They then try to pound the house with artillery. Well, the light field guns that were with the American Army were never going to be able to cave in the walls of that house. If you've never been there, it's very thick sandstone walls. They then deploy that reserve division that was meant to continue the attack forward to confront the House, the North Carolinians and the New Jerseyans. And I actually think if they had left just one or two of those regiments to keep an eye on things, they could have still sent the rest of that division forward. They don't do that. I also argue in the book, I don't think there was actually an order to assault the House. I think Matthias Ogden and Elias Dayton kind of do that on their own. I don't think there was actual order to do it, but you know, we could debate that another time too. But the first and third New Jersey regiments are going to attack up the lane to Cliveden to try to take over the house. And they basically just start getting picked off in the yard of the house. They do not gain entry to the house. And that fails in a bloody mess in that front yard of the house. The next thing they try to do is they're going to try to burn them out. And they move a wagon with hay loaded on it up to the side of this stone house now, mind you, and try to burn them out. And that will fail. And some more senior staff officers are morally wounded. John Lawrence is going to take a round through the shoulder trying to light that hay on fire. John Lawrence's father, of course, will very soon be the president of Congress, Henry Lawrence. So all their efforts are going to fail. And what's really important here is while all this is happening, the troops that had advanced deep in the Germantown start to hear all the shooting to their rear. And a combination of factors are going to happen. They are starting to run out of ammunition. They hear shooting in their rear. There's fog. They don't really know what's happening behind them. And units start to peel off and start to move back in the opposite direction. You start to get friendly fire incidents when this happens. And it allows the British to regroup and reinforce the the areas of the line that had been collapsed. And uh, so as all these units start to draw towards the fight at Cliveden, the British counterattack. And they're going to retake all the ground they had lost and drive the Americans out of Germantown. And it really all hinges on those decisions made to attack Cliveden or deal with Cliveden. That obviously was the major source of confusion that day. There was a great deal of confusion on other parts of the field as well. I know General Adam Stevens' troops ended up firing on other American troops in the midst of the fog. After the battle, Stevens is accused of drunkenness and malperformance of duty and all sorts of things and ends up getting kicked out of the army, essentially. Do you think that was fair? I mean, it seems like there was a lot of problems on that day, and he was not the only one. That's a great question. Let's do some background here. He is accused of drunkenness, but when you read the court-martial documents, he's not found guilty of drunkenness. That's a hard thing to prove in an army of drinkers. But he's actually convicted of conduct. I, I, I don't remember the exact language, but it basically yeah, it's conduct is, unlike an officer. Actually, it's because he's not with his troops. There's at least three documented incidences during the course of the battle where he's giving orders to men that aren't under his command, creating a great deal of confusion. I think the most egregious of those is during the retreat, Anthony Wayne assembles a rear guard in White Marsh where St. Thomas Church is tonight at that intersection of Bethlehem Pike and Route 73 up in the White Marsh area, they assemble a rear guard there because of the British pursuit. Wayne scratches together a force and Stevens just rides up and orders them away. I mean, that's one of three documented ones where he's giving orders he shouldn't be giving. 
And so ultimately, the real true reason he's thrown out of the army is for conduct unbecoming, basically. Now, why? That's the big mystery question. Is what he did any worse than what others did? There's four major court martials in the aftermath of Germantown. John Sullivan is court-martialed for Brandywine and exonerated. William Maxwell is court-martialed for Brandywine and Bow the Clouds, accused of drunkenness and exonerated. Anthony Wayne is court-martialed for Paoli and exonerated. Stephen is the only one that gets thrown out of the army. So why, right? My guess is I can't prove it. They needed to find a spot for Lafayette. Congress made him a two-star general. Now, he gets wounded at Brandywine while not actually in command of anybody, but he's getting ready to come back to the Army, and they got to find a spot for him. Politically, they have to find a spot for him. And I actually make an argument in this appendix of the new book where I deal with the court-martial. I think it has a lot to do with that. Stephen's a two-star general. Now, there's other guys that got court-martialed. Only John Sullivan was a two-star general. And Sullivan, I mean, there was no proof against Sullivan. There was no way they could have done it to Sullivan. Stephen, they could make an argument that he was causing issues, and it would shockingly create a spot for Lafayette. And when Lafayette returns, that's a division he gets. He ends right. up commanding Virginians. I've always felt like Washington never really liked Stephen from the beginning. They knew each other back to the beginning of the French and Indian War. Yeah. They got along, but they were very different personalities. Yeah, um, true. Washington was very prim and proper, elite chain of command formality. Stephen was really the opposite of that. And I think also Stephen almost screwed up the raid on Trenton by sending soldiers to, to hit the British right before the surprise attack. So I think Washington felt Stephen had several strikes against him already, which yeah. set him up for being the fall guy when he failed again yeah. at Germantown. True. I mean, yes, all that's true. But was he doing anything any worse than anybody else? He's only one of two general officers thrown out of the army the whole war. The only other one being Charles Lee in the aftermath of Monmouth, which you could argue his actions were far worse than what Stephen did. We could do a whole discussion just on that. <laughs> right, you're right. But I think we can agree that if they were looking for somebody to put where to put Lafayette, Stephen was the weakest link. Yeah. So in the attack on Germantown, Washington used militia for the far left and far right flanks of his attack. They did not do so well. Was that a good idea? Um, I mean, yes, they don't do well. I, it's not their fault that the Americans lose that fight. Pennsylvania militia is the far right of the attack, basically attacking down Ridge Road through Maniunk, supposed to cross at the mouth of the Wissahickon Creek in that Wissahickon Gorge and assault the left flank of the British camp. That was what they were supposed to do. Now, if you've ever gone, I'm going to defend them a little bit here. When, if you ever go into the Germantown area and visit Wissahickon Park and walk those trails where this all happened, that's a gorge. I mean, if you ever drove up Kelly Drive along the Wissahickon, it's a gorge. It's not easy terrain to attack across. And they're up against Hessian Jaegers, which are an elite force. I'm not saying they did exactly what they were supposed to, but the task assigned to them was not an easy one. They do get to where they're supposed to. They do engage the Jaegers, but they don't make much of an effort to cross the bridge that was there across the Wissahickon and really occupy the left flank of the British force to prevent them from sending reinforcements to the center of the line. They do not do that. So of all the units, I would argue that fought at Germantown, they perform the worst. They do get to where they're supposed to. They do engage, but they don't really push the issue. Now, I actually disagree with other histories of the battle. The Maryland and New Jersey militia, which are on the far left, most histories of the battle make it sound like they don't even get there or they don't even fight. I don't agree with that. There's enough circumstantial evidence and there's enough evidence in the casualty reports and in pension records and in British accounts that they engaged somebody over there and it wasn't Green's column. I actually argue in, in the new book that the Maryland and Jersey militia do engage both the Queen's Rangers and elements of the British Brigade Guards. Hmm. Now, they don't push them back. They don't really find a lot of success, but they are engaged. They do suffer casualties, which tells me they got to where they're supposed to. But again, they're not the reason that they lose the battle either. They actually do keep troops from reinforcing James Grant's British division 
which got crushed by Nathaniel Green's attack. I mean, that division was utterly crushed and driven into Market Square in Germantown. And the fact that the Maryland and Jersey militia were occupying some elements of the British force, those units couldn't come in and save Grant's division. So I kind of don't agree with most other issues of the battle, except maybe when it comes to the Pennsylvania militia. The British do effectively counterattack and the Continentals are forced to withdraw. Washington ends up setting up a new camp for defense at White Marsh, which is fairly close to Germantown. It's only a few miles away. It looked like he was gearing up for another fight. Uh, Do you think at this point the Continental Army was really in condition for for another battle? Uh, How do I want to answer that? No. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's keep it simple. There's going to be a long stretch from about mid-October to mid-November where really the focus of the campaign becomes the river forts, Fort Mifflin and Fort Mercer. For the, a good chunk of that time period, yes, Washington's a camp roughly in the White Marsh area. For some of that, he's a little bit farther north, but for most of that, he's in the White Marsh area. It's not till really after Fort Mifflin's forced to be abandoned and then as a result, Fort Mercer is abandoned, that the ground that Washington's on becomes a factor. It's pretty good ground. In fact, I was out there yesterday looking at them, starting to work on a new project, looking at the ground. It's significant terrain. It's not easily assaulted by an attacking force. But there's a lot going on there. The army that hit fought under him at Brandywine and Germantown is regrouping. But this is now post-Saratoga. So the army that captures Burgoyne is slowly coming down and joining the main army, Washington's army. The bulk of the Saratoga force will also be at Valley Forge. So there's a lot of new units being amalgamated into the force that had served throughout the rest of the campaign. So there's a lot going on at White Marsh. They're reconstructing the army. They're regrouping. They also need to decide where their winter quarters are going to be. At this point, I'm not convinced Washington thought there would be another fight, but they need to decide where they're going to camp for the winter. It's Hal that decides he wants to try to get another fight in. It's Hal that's going to lead a column out on December 6th and 7th to try to draw Washington into another fight. I don't think Washington's seeking a fight at that point. He's forced into one that turns into a relatively minor engagement over two days, over the 6th and 7th. And it's mostly militia that's involved, with the exception of Daniel Morgan's riflemen. The main army, the Continental Line, up on what's today called Militia Hill and Camp Hill, they're not engaged. It's really just the militia and Daniel Morgan's riflemen. And that's really the last, uh, I shouldn't say that, there's going to be another engagement. That's the last engagement involving the main armies. It's the last real intentional engagement. They run into each other at Matson's Fort. Exactly. I just thought it was provocative that Washington picked a position so close to the British at that point that he was almost inviting them. Well, keep in mind, he's still trying to starve them out. So the closer he is to Philadelphia, the less ground the British have to forage from. And as you say, to his credit, he picked really good defensive ground. So if they did actually try to hit him there, they could have had another Bunker Hill on their hands. It's significant ground. I was walking it quite a bit yesterday with another historian. It would not have been a good position for the British to attack. Let me just put it that way. So after the British come out and they have a almost battle at White Marsh, they do go into winter quarters at Valley Forge, and that pretty much ends the fighting for the season. How does Germantown fit into the, the, the larger story of the war? I mean, how important was it to the course of the war? Stunningly, and I was kind of shocked by this when I was doing my research and trying to summarize the importance in the epilogue. There is documents in Franklin's papers, in John Adams' papers, even in French governmental papers. It's almost like Germantown gets as much credit as Saratoga for the French alliance, which is kind of stunning when you think about it because it's a loss. However, think about it this way. It was the first time Washington took the main Continental Army and attacked the main British Army. The only other time he attacked prior to that was Trent and Princeton, and that was against detachments. That wasn't against the whole British Army. So I actually think it had more significance that, yes, they captured an army in Saratoga, but the fact that Washington was willing to do that, I think it said a lot in those negotiations over in Paris. I think the French, 
were not so concerned about the Americans winning as much as they were concerned about them not losing. In other words, they wanted the war to go on and on and on and distract the British for a long time. And Washington's decision to attack Germantown after losing Brandywine and losing possession of Philadelphia told the French that they weren't going to say, oh, we lost our capital, we give up. They're just going to keep hitting the British and hitting them again and hitting them again, win or lose, the, the, the fight's going to go. And that's exactly what they wanted to hear. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. You did a lot of great research on Germantown on your book. Quite frankly, I did not find a good book on Germantown, unfortunately, when I was writing my episode on Germantown, which came out about a month before your book was released. <laughs> So obviously you didn't have a lot of great books to rely on when you were writing yours either. Where did you find most of your research or where did you find a lot of inspiration for this work? Well, luckily when I was working on Brandywine, I was sort of smart enough that when I did stumble on something, I copied, like I wouldn't just copy somebody's letter about Brandywine. I was copying everything they had. So I had put together pretty good files after Brandywine or during Brandywine. And then I got augmented as I was pursuing Germantown. In some ways, it's easier now because so much stuff is digitized and online. Uh, so in some ways, it's easier now than it was 10, 15 years ago. But in another way, revolutionary war research is so hard because it's scattered. There's Hessian documents in Germany, and it's in German. There's yes. French documents in France, and it's in French. The British stuff's not all in one place. A lot of these officers were lords or became lords later in life, or were the children of lords, and their papers are scattered in castles and manor houses all over Great Britain. And so it's not all centralized. And it's the same here. Depending on what repository a family donated papers to, you go in between the New York Historical Society, the Massachusetts Historical Society, the Library of Congress, to the William Clements Library at the University, you know, it's scattered. Yeah. So it involves some travel. It involves long hours and smelly repositories. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it's not easy. It's scattered. <laughs> so, are you working on anything new these days? I'm in the very early stages. I mean, Germantown just came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm mentally taking a break. Although I told you yesterday I was traipsing some ground with another historian who's working on his own project, but our stuff's overlapping a little bit. And so we, we decided to get together a couple times now. But ultimately, once you read Germantown or once you've read Germantown, you realize it doesn't finish the story. It basically ends right in the aftermath of Germantown. I originally intended to take that story up to October 20th, which is the day the British withdrew that camp from Germantown. My original goal was to end there, and the editing didn't like that. <laughs> so... The last chapter was changed significantly, and, and they were right. So there needs to be a third volume, at least a third volume, that covers the fight for the two forts, Mercer, Mifflin, the engagement at White Marsh, and all the maneuvering that takes place to get them to Valley Forge. So ultimately, there's going to be a third book. It's just I haven't really truly started yet, just sort of in the preliminary stages here. Yeah, you're entitled <laughs> to some time off after finishing Germantown. <laughs> So probably around Christmas time when my winter break, I'll start digging in. Really, I got to start with Fort Mercer because I really have the first chapter written because it was originally going to be the last chapter of Germantown. So I really got to start diving in on my Fort Mercer research. That's where it's going to start. All right. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Your book again is Germantown, A Military History of the Battle for Philadelphia, October 4th, 1777, which just came out, what, last month? Yeah, like the middle of September got released. September? Okay. Yeah, it's really good. I love it. It really fills a hole in a lot of the writing I've seen on the war. So I heartily recommend it. All right. Well, thank you for having me. It was, it was fun. Once again, I'd like to thank Mr. Harris for taking the time to talk about the Philadelphia campaign with me. If you would like to read more on the topic, I heartily recommend his two books. The first is called Brandywine a military history of the battle that lost Philadelphia but saved America, September 11, 1777. And of course, his new book, Germantown, A Military History of the Battle for Philadelphia, October 4, 1777. If you would like to order his book, I've added links to both of them on my blog. My blog also contains a full transcript of this podcast, 
as well as some helpful illustrations and maps about the topic of our discussion. You can visit my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>